Friends, it's, it's good to be back. Uh, Laura and I had a great 10-year uh, anniversary celebration last week uh, out in Maryland and West Virginia. Uh, it was a great time seeing family as well. And uh, I want to thank uh, Zach's for a great sermon last week. And uh, between him and Kevin, I was able to get away. Um, and uh, I jokingly said to Kevin Johnson uh, two weeks ago that uh, he had taken the hardest part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but I just want to say, you know, be thankful, Kevin. I don't know where you are. But I didn't give you marriage, sexuality, and divorce in the same sermon. <laughs> Be thankful you didn't get this one. Because few topics are fraught with more controversy or affect us more deeply than some of these. And on Pentecost Sunday, it may seem like you know, an odd fit uh, to be talking about sexual, sexuality and marriage. But I assure you uh, that it's not. You know, at Pentecost, we often think about how people understood you know, Peter's message in different languages. Or we think about the Spirit's powerful uh, gifts for the body of Christ. Or perhaps you think about the Spirit's fruit in our lives. But we can never forget that the Holy Spirit's goal is to make us God's holy people. The Holy Spirit's goal is to make us God's holy, set-apart people. He is the Holy Spirit. It's a key word. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the, the main problem that the Holy Spirit came to solve was our lack of holiness. You see, in the Old Covenant, the people could not and they would not obey God's commands. That's why they were punished and went into exile. And so when Ezekiel the prophet, that great prophet, when he prophesied about this coming new day, about this new co coming a covenant and the coming of the Spirit, God said through Ezekiel, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. That's why God sent the Spirit. So if you think that the Spirit is telling you to be less holy, to disobey God's commands, to be negligent in what God uh, commands us to do, it's probably some other Spirit talking to you than the Holy Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be Jesus' holy people. And as we'll talk about today, that's expressed in our holy sexuality, whether single or married. You know, and Kevin said two weeks ago that Jesus is more than a moral teacher, but he's certainly not less. It's very true. And Jesus' moral teaching on sexuality and marriage are some of his most demanding. But as always, whoever gives up their life for Jesus and the kingdom finds true life. Now, before I dive into the content of what Jesus says, I want to give two reminders. The first is that Jesus' moral teaching, they're for his holy people. They are for followers of Jesus who are in his kingdom. That's who he's talking to. This is for people, as I said a couple weeks ago, this is for team salt and light. Those who are different, who are set apart, whose purpose is to season and shine the goodness of God in the world. And their motive is to bring glory to God with their behavior and their good deeds. So this is not an ethic that we prescribe for the world or that we would expect from the world. It's an ethic that is impossible apart from Jesus, apart from his body, the church, and apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way this is possible. And when it comes to this issue, perhaps we can hope that the world might see us like, okay, we're using the pulpit, okay. All right, I'll just leave this on. <laughs> when, 
when it comes to this issue, we can hope that perhaps the world might see us like we see the Amish. Starkly different, astonishingly different, but not demanding that we become like them, not condemning those who are outside the Amish community, but starkly different from the world. The second thing I want to remind us is that it starts with a beautiful vision of how God designed us as his creatures. We ought first to see the positivity, the ideal, the beauty behind what God has designed and intends for us, for our flourishing and for the good of all creation. And Jesus wants to restore that. So we're going to talk about two things, holy sexuality and holy marriage. All right, so let's talk about holy sexuality. And if you want to open up to Matthew 5, you're welcome to follow along with me. We're looking at verse 27 here. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus begins by quoting the Old Testament law. And remember, he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, as he said. He has come to fulfill them. And then he, he ramps up the intensity of the call, calling us to surpass the righteousness of the religious people of his day. So it's not enough to say, well, I haven't committed adultery, or I make a point to not commit adultery. Okay, that's not enough, Jesus says. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. Friends, lust, lust is not simply noticing someone's beauty or even the temptation itself. No, lust is the intentional act to gaze upon someone or to dwell in the mind upon someone in order to gratify yourself. That's what it is. And Jesus says this is wrong. And so at its most basic level, we learn from Jesus Christ that not all the sexual desires you have are good. At its most basic level. Now, God created us. He created sexuality. He created us. He deemed it very good. And he designed it to be expressed between a husband and wife who become one. That's when it's good. And if you doubt the Bible views sex positively, just go read the Song of Solomon this afternoon. And you'll find out there's a very positive view of this in the Bible. But when we seek to selfishly gratify these desires outside the way God has designed it, that's when Jesus calls it lust. Now the world discerns sexual desires and ethics very different than this. The world says, I feel X, therefore X is who I am, therefore X must be expressed. To deny X is to deny my very being. So the world starts with desires and feelings that, that makes their identity and they want to act according to that identity. The world says it's wrong or, or perhaps even harmful to repress your sexual desires. Self-denial does not make you a good person. Self-expression does. So if you can find somebody who will consent to do whatever it is you want to do, what harm is there in that, the world says? For example, some of you might remember this. This was actually a long time ago now. In 1992, when 56-year-old Woody Allen broke off his 12-year relationship with Mia Farrow 
in order to marry her 22-year-old adopted daughter. Some of you remember, might remember this in the news. I see some heads nodding. He said at that time, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. That's how the world, it's, I think it's much different than that, that's how the world discerns sexual and romantic desire. The heart wants it's my heart. It's, it's who I am, and therefore it must be expressed. I fell in love. What can I do? I fell in love with another person's spouse. What can I do about that? But Christians, we don't start with our feelings. Do you remember what I said in the salt and light sermon? We start, as Jesus taught us, with our identity. We start with our identity first. I'm salt and light. I'm a follower of Jesus. And then, I, then we go to purpose, who God made me to be. And then my motivation, my motivation is to bring glory to God in obedience to him. We start with identity, then we go to purpose, then motivation. So Christians would say, I am, I am X, I am this, I feel Y. I could be feeling Y because of myself, because of the world, because of my flesh, or temptation from the devil. But I choose to do based on my identity in Christ as a disciple of Jesus. And I know he created sexual desire to be expressed in the union of a husband and wife. And my motive is to please him. This is a really hard teaching. But it's crazy to me how people will twist Jesus into their own image in, to suit their own ends. I, I hear people say things on this issue. Well, you know, Jesus doesn't really care about sexuality. He doesn't really say much about it. And he certainly would never judge anybody because of it. Have you read the words of Jesus? What did he just say? I mean, this isn't me saying this, friends. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So unrepentant sexual sin puts us in, the, in danger of the eternal judgment of hell, according to Jesus. This was so serious to Jesus Christ that he used the most grotesque language possible. This is something that's in your life. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. The point is, do whatever it takes. Go through any physical suffering that you have to now so that you don't go through the suffering of eternal punishment. That's what Jesus is saying. But he said, Nate, it's so hard and it's so painful to deny how I feel. Like what, I like what John Calvin says. He says, Jesus, Jesus means that however difficult, arduous, troublesome, or painful God's rule may be, we must make no excuse for that, as the righteousness of God should be worth more to us than all the other things which are so chiefly dear and precious. The righteousness of God, worth more than all the pleasures of the world or sexuality. It's worth more. And Jesus expects holy sexuality from his followers. Now, I take this term uh, from the author Christopher Ewan, who has a book called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, which I would recommend to you. But with all the conversation about homosexuality, heterosexuality, bisexuality, alternative sexualities... 
The important thing is to embrace holy sexuality as God designs and commands. And friends, the, the devil is a prowling lion and temptation is common to every single one of us. And I believe that all of us can experience the temptation to lust towards anyone of either sex. That's temptation. That's how it works. But no matter what temptations we face, we are all summoned by the same serious call to a devout and holy sexuality. The Holy Spirit's goal is to make us God's holy people. And your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a holy body. It's a holy place. And as Paul says, Jesus bought your body with his precious blood. So it is now not your own. And so in the Christian identity, it's not our bodies and our choice, and we can do whatever we want. It's his body. He paid for it with his blood, and his spirit is in you. Therefore, honor God with your body. So what's our identity? We're loved by God, and we're followers of Jesus. Our purpose is to be holy. Our motivation is to bring him glory. Well, if that wasn't controversial or, ready, ready, or uh, heavy enough, you ready for the next one? Let's talk about holy marriage. Jesus continues in verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, to understand this passage, you need to understand the debate that was going on in Judaism at this time when Jesus was teaching. And there was a debate about a passage in Deuteronomy 24. I'm not going to read it right now, but it's about a man who was writing a woman a certificate of divorce because he found something, as it says, indecent about her, some indecency, unchastity. And there is a debate between two rabbis, two rabbinical schools, uh, Shammai and Hillel. And the debate was, well, for what indecency could a man divorce his wife? Shammai said, what this means is only the act of adultery, period. That's it. The conservative teaching. Well, Hillel said, this indecency could be anything. We can interpret this to be anything. You know, if, if, the, if the wife cooks a food in the way the husband does not like, that would be a legitimate reason. If the husband finds someone that looks more attractive, he thinks, that would be a legitimate reason to Hillel. What school of thought do you think was more popular in the time of Jesus? Probably pretty easy to guess. Hillel school, the one that said you basically could do anything. There's no fault. So in the time of Jesus, by and large, divorce was not really a big deal. You could get divorced for almost any reason. All you had to do was make sure you had the proper paperwork. That's what they were talking about with the certificate of divorce. Just write that and you're fine. Okay? But Jesus, or sorry, on, the, on this note, when the, now the certificate of divorce, it allowed the wife to legally get remarried. So in this case, remarriage was assumed. It was possible and it was assumed. We'll come back to that later. 
But what Jesus is doing is he is reinstating God's intention of marriage into a context in which divorce had become not really wrong or sinful, but just get the paperwork done. He's saying no. This comes up in a different situation. In Mark chapter 10, I submitted this late, but Matthias, did you get this from me? Nope, I did not. Okay, that's my fault. In Mark chapter 10, if you want to turn there, or you can just listen to me. It says, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So when Jesus is asked about divorce, what does he do? He points back to Genesis. This is his moral framework for all of his sexual ethics and marital ethics. You see, the law in Deuteronomy, it, uh, it was not God's ideal. It was about how to manage a broken situation that arose in the community. So Jesus goes back to Genesis. God made them male and female. They become one. God has made them one. Therefore, do not separate this union. Jesus is upholding the holiness or the sacredness of marriage. You know, I think one reason why our, our culture and our time, we, we have such a hard time grasping the significance of this is because we don't, we don't see the sacredness of the marital union between husband and wife. We don't view it as a holy, sacred thing. But it's something that's created, designed, and blessed by God that must be honored as holy. And Jesus is essentially saying, this is, this is a sacred union. This is, this is something God has brought together, so do, what, do not break up what God has brought together. And when Jesus teaches this in Mark, he gives no exception, which seems kind of concerning. In Mark 10, 11 through 12, he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and, she, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. As you notice, in Mark, there's no exception for sexual morality clause. So what's, what's going on there? Well, first, I think when we get into this topic, we begin to wonder, well, well what about this? Well, what about that? Don't miss the main point. The main point is the holiness of marriage. Keep it together. That's the main point. Stay married. Stay faithful. That's God's ideal. But we are fallen human beings who sin, and we are married to fallen human beings who sin and can sin against us and break the marriage covenant. So what about those exceptions? Well, Matthew seems to add an exception that was not originally there. That's what it says in the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality commits adultery. Now, I think what's going on is Matthew is probably making explicit what would have been understood by Jesus' audience. In fact, later Jewish law actually required divorce in the case of adultery. 
See, they understood that if the one flesh bond was made with somebody else, that constituted a breaking of the original bond. And so that destroys the marriage. And so sexual morality was seemingly a given exception. And I think this helps us understand what Jesus says next when he says, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality uh, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, I'm sure you're not surprised that there's a little debate about this uh, in the commentaries, um, but I, can, I find compelling what R.T. France wrote. And you'll, you'll want to pay close attention to this. It says, The prohibition of divorce is here expressed as the initiation of adultery. With regard to the woman, it makes her the victim of adultery, either uh, in that the husband's repudiation of a marriage, which is intact, is itself equated with an act of adultery, since adultery destroys a marriage, or in that when she subsequently remarries, as is provided for in the divorce certificate, and is assumed as the sequel to her divorce, she will be placed by her husband's act in an adulterous relationship since the original marriage remains valid in the sight of God. So both the divorced wife, the victim of the first husband's unjust act, and her sus subsequent husband are involved in an act of adultery. Did you catch all that? If not, I can send you the notes. <laughs> Basically what's going on, Jesus is saying, if someone, if someone is of the the Hillel school mindset. If you just get divorced for any old reason, Jesus says, you're making that person a victim of adultery. You are doing to them what adultery does to a marriage. You are destroying it. You are ending it. You are making them suffer the same pain and fate as if you had actually committed adultery against them in fact. The point is, fight to stay married. And if you divorce for, for just any reason, Jesus says, you're guilty of breaking the commandment against adultery because it destroys the marriage. The heart of the commandment against adultery in the Old Testament, the ideal behind it, is to honor and be committed to one's spouse. So sexual morality, adultery, they were considered essentially a standard exception to this. Not a requirement, but an exception. But what about other exceptions? Well, in the Old Testament, there's another verses about how Jewish husbands were commanded to provide food, shelter, and clothing. And Jewish rabbis later stated that if these conditions were not provided for, or if a spouse was painfully cruel, divorce could be granted. I think that's wisdom. And Craig Keener subs it up this way. He says, Jesus' exceptions do not constitute an excuse to escape a difficult marriage, but they exonerate those who genuinely wish to save their marriage but were unable to do so because of their spouse's unrepentant adultery, abandonment, or abuse de facto destroyed the marriage bonds. In addition to all this, the Apostle Paul adds the exception that if an unbelieving spouse wants to Depart from a believing spouse, that would be another exception as well. And there may be other valid reasons as well that I have not mentioned. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard topic. And I know it affects probably all of us personally at some level. 
And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that divorce involves a lot of pain and suffering. And I don't want any divorced person here or listening to me to feel that you are somehow less than or to feel that you are unloved or unforgiven. There are justifiable and biblical reasons for divorce. And Jesus himself recognizes that some people are made the victims of this. They're made the victims of someone else's unrepentant choices. And you may be totally innocent of what happened. So take some comfort in that. And even if you weren't totally innocent, if, even if you had you, your part to play, you can be forgiven by Jesus Christ today. Being divorced doesn't mean you now live in some perpetual state of sin or shame. No, you can live in newness of life with Christ today. So also, friends, as I conclude my teaching on this subject, um, I ask that you would give me some grace, give me some benefit of the doubt. Uh, I can't possibly cover every biblical passage or thought or situation on this topic. I can't possibly know your specific situation, past or current. And so if you're wondering about anything that I've said or that the Bible teaches on the subject, reach out to me, talk to me after the service. I'd be happy to get together with you and talk through some things. And if you think, well, Nate really didn't get into this, he didn't address this or that, and he's missing this, well, we offered a whole eight-week class on marriage, gender, and sexuality, all right? And uh, it was awesome. It was really beneficial for everyone who attended. And if you let me know if there's more interest, I'd be happy to offer that class again. But there's a lot to go through with this, and I can't cover it all. But in closing, what do we do with this high call of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount? Let me give you a few thoughts. First, urgently kill off lust. Urgently kill it off. That's what Jesus says. Remember his radical words. Gouge out your eye if you have to. If anything is dragging you into lust, cut it out of your life. If you have a pornography addiction, seek immediate help. Sin thrives in the dark, but it begins to die in the light. And if you're hiding a sexual sin, that's only going to make it worse. You can tell me, you can tell someone you trust. Some of you may need a counselor to get out of some of this. There's no shame in that. Get the help you need. Do whatever you have to do to free yourself of this. You can, you can get accountability software for your, for your phone or your computer. Uh, but friends, the point is, destroy lust before it destroys you, your mind, your heart, and your relationships. Because it will. Second thought that I want to give you is to honor and support the single people among us and in your life. Singleness can be a choice and a calling. Sometimes it's involuntary. The Bible does recognize the unique devotion in which a single person might choose to, to serve the Lord, and the church should recognize that and honor that. Uh, but we also recognize that you are uniquely called to live out holy sexuality without the support of a spouse. So married friends, be mindful of your single brothers and sisters. Support them, love them, include them in your life. Third thought is we need to honor and support marriages, your own marriage included. If you're married, remember that you are in a spiritual, sacred union with that person. If your marriage is going well, praise God. Keep tending it. Keep watering it. 
Keep, doing, keep dating your spouse. Keep working on your relationship always. Work through your issues, whatever they may be. And if your marriage is struggling right now, please seek help. Exhaust every resource you can to stay together with your spouse. If you need counseling, get counseling. We'd be glad to help you find a counselor. And if you're a single person, honor the marriages of your friends and support them and help them in any way you can. My final concluding thought on this is, friends, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope you feel a little bit of the weight of this call, but we are not left alone. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pursue God and pursue the spiritual disciplines that open you up to the influence of the Spirit. If you're, if you're filled with lust, start filling yourself with this Holy Spirit and the Holy Word of God so that your mind is renewed and changed. And if your marriage is struggling, start seeking the help of the Holy Spirit in prayer, getting down on your knees so you can fight to keep your marriage together. We can't possibly live up to this on our own. But he who calls us is faithful. His Spirit is in us to empower us to be his holy people. I could tell you if I had more time, I could tell you about many testimonies of people who've overcome addictions, overcome, overcome pornography, gotten out of lust, saved their marriage when it was struggling. There could be testimonies of people within this congregation that I can let you know about and give praise to God for his victory that is possible through the empowering of his Holy Spirit. And that's what we celebrate and remember at Pentecost, that his Spirit is in us to be his holy people. It's daunting, but it's possible through his Spirit. Amen?